Good morning, class. I'm glad you're here on this little chilly day. Um, I want you to turn with me in your Bible to the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of Christ. And I want you to go to chapter 1. We're going to do a little bit of a review, review today just to bring us up to speed on the churches. Um, you'll note, you recall, and I gave you a set of outline, a two-page outline uh, based on this verse, verse 19. It says, write therefore the things which you have seen, and that's the vision of Christ in chapter 1. Uh, and the things that are, that's the seven churches we see in chapter 2 and chapter 3, and then the things after these things, what we find in chapter 4 to the end of the book. And then you recall that as we got into the seven churches, the first one being Ephesus, we had an emphasis for that as we looked at the overall message, and that message, I tried to articulate it in just a few words or a phrase. And I suggested apathy about Christ negatively impacts the saint's destiny. And that's chapter uh, 2 and uh, the first church in verses 1 to verse 7. Then we looked at the second church, uh, Smyrna, which means bitter. And we talked about the bitterness that they're facing in the church through adversity. And we suggested another phrase that would help you to understand what this uh, particular message is all about, that uh, faithfulness in adversity uh, positively impacts the saint's destiny. So one, it can impact in a negative way if we don't love Christ like we're supposed to, and, but it will impact us positively if we're faithful in the midst of adversity. We find that in the second uh, church, Smyrna. And then the third one uh, in verse 12 of chapter 2, down to verse 17, we talked about the church of Pergamos, a Pergamum. And that word means worldly and marriage and different things like that. So the bonding that we can have with others. And we suggested to you uh, that that church also uh, can be articulated or the message to that church that purity before God leads to saints' intimacy with God. Purity with God leads to the saints' intimacy uh, with God. And that's uh, found in the verse 12 to 13 at the Church of Pergamos. And then to this morning we come to church number four, they retire, and this is a rather lengthy uh, passage here, message, and it's a message primarily of condemnation, and we want to look at it with a little bit of detail this morning, but I want you to notice uh, chapter 2, verse 18, and to the angel of the church of Theotira write, Theotira is a word, look up here a second, it's made up two words, one, sacrifice, and the other one is unweary. So there is uh, this ongoing, constant sacrifices that are going, in the, in, going on in this church. has nothing to do with Christianity. has to do with Jezebel and the teaching that leads to going to pagan temples and so on. And that's why it talks about all of those uh, um, different sacrifices. And the thing that I want you to see as we work through this particular uh, message to Theratyra 
is that theological accuracy uh, or heresy, theological heresy, destroys a quality ministry. And we're going to see that because he's going to say, I know about your works and your deeds, and they're greater now than they ever were. But you got that woman in the false teaching that's going to destroy you if you don't respond in a proper way. So that's the message of this particular church. Theological heresy destroys a quality ministry. Now, let's look at it. His credentials, Christ's credentials. Remember, we talked about that. When you go through these passages, there's a similarity in the outline. It talks about the credentials of Christ, and it'll talk about whatever um, commendation normally that he that he can tell them about, and then he talks about the condemnation, and then the uh, the end he tells about those that overcome and the, the blessing that can be theirs. Now, when we look at this church then, to the angel, the messenger, I think the pastor of the church in Theotira, right, the Son of God, that's his deity, that's his first credential, uh, who has eyes like the flame of fire, there's his scrutiny, his x-ray vision, if you please. He can see right through us. And then his burnished bronze, that is his stability, the burnished bronze of his feet. And so it's talking about purity or stability. Both of them go together. Um, purity leads to a proper stability in life. It helps us to avoid many of the pitfalls of life. That's his credentials. Then he says, here's my commendation to you, beginning at verse 19. I know your deeds. I know what you do. And your love. So your activities, your love, your faith, and the emphasis on that word there is not your belief system, but more your faithfulness to that belief system. Uh, And uh, your faithfulness then and their service and your perseverance. You keep at it. Perseverance having to do with abiding under the circumstances. So he's talking really to the faithful ones there at this point. So that's his accommodation to them. Uh, But then in verse 20, it begins this way. But, and then we have this long dissertation class on the unfaithfulness and the heresy that is within this church. So he says to them, I know your deeds, I know your love, I know your faithfulness, I I know your service, and I know your perseverance, you stick to it, but, and here is a major issue, Christ is saying to them, you've got to deal with this, or you're going to pay the consequence as a church. Now notice what it says, I have this against you, that you tolerate Uh, the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and and eat things sacrificed. Now, we want to talk about that. First of all, Jezebel. This This is a lady that parallels in her lifestyle and in her emphasis and influence over people. Jezebel, the wife of uh, Ahab back in the Old Testament. She was a horrible lady, and she advocated uh, Baal worship. And this is similar what's going on here. Then notice he says, uh, this I have against you. You tolerate. 
that woman Jezebel. You're putting up with her. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but let's deal with the stuff that they're tolerating first, if you don't mind. Notice it says you tolerate. And by the way, it says in the King James, suffereth. Uh, this passage in my translation says tolerate. The Greek word simply means you're permitting this to happen. You're allowing it to happen. That's part of their problem as a church. Not only that, it, that it's going on, but the rest of you are allowing it to go on. Now, notice what it says. It says she calls herself a prophetess. Now, there's her arrogancy, her arrogancy. She is a self-proclaimed prophet. And it goes beyond that, it says. And uh, she teaches and leads. Notice both of those words. Now, we're biblically-oriented people here, and we know that the Old Testament and the New Testament says that the man is to be the leader. That's not an indication of inferiority or any of that kind of thing. If you want to call that inferiority, then you've got to talk about the relationship between the father and the son. One is subordinate to the other. Does that imply in, uh, inferiority in the triunity of God? Of course not. But there is positions that are uh, ascribed to in the Scripture. And we ha- live in a culture that is negating that, and by the way, that is infiltrating into the church. My son David just went to Atlanta. He's been here with us a few days. He's at another church this morning. He's gone to an African-American church. In fact, he's going to go to a different ones this morning to experience that. But the bottom line is, while he was there, they were dealing with family and in uh, this Evangelical Theological Society, which is the academic arena for Bible and theological academics people. And, uh, and, uh, and in the midst of all of that, he comes back home and he's discouraged because the evangelical church is beginning to manifest stuff that ought not to be there. And, and uh, for example, one paper was read that we ought to be, according to the Bible, receptive to homosexuality. Where are they coming from this day? And the idea is culture is impacting, okay? And so we need to be aware that that pressure is going to be there in our churches for different things. In this church, it was a woman who was teaching falsehood, but not only that, she was leading other people astray. Now, I want to emphasize that for a second, uh, that uh, she is out of line. And I want you to hold your place here in Revelation, and I want you to go with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We talked about the, talk about this male leadership, but let's look at it in the Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I know that some of you folks uh, already know this. You're quite familiar with it. But at the same time, some of our listeners... Uh, or viewers on television, or maybe there's somebody in, in this group that you know the fact, but you don't know where is the passage that substantiates that. And I think in our mental computer, we ought to have backup verses that help us to understand of what the teaching is. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Notice what it says. 
the woman, uh, <clears throat> let a woman quietly receive instruction with the uh, entire submissiveness. And here's our verse. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over women. That is not saying women don't have leadership. It is not saying that there's not such a thing as a female teacher. It is saying there's not to be a female that does that over men. My wife and I were involved in a local church uh, internship. One church was like 18 months in length. My wife ended up teaching uh, the adult ladies class, and she started having men trying to sneak into the class, and she, she had to say something about it because she was feeling uncomfortable in lighting of the, of the teaching of the word, you see it? And so notice, I do not allow a woman, verse 12, to teach or to exercise authority over man, but to keep quiet. Now, class, I want to say something else. My son came back, and he was telling me that something that is a growing phenomenon is in the evangelical church is what we call cultural hermeneutic. In other words, when you look at the New Testament, you say, okay, that was true in that culture back then, but that is not true now, okay? Salvation, was it true back then, and now culture dictates that's not true? How far do we want to go with all of that? So you've got to be careful. And Paul is saying to us, that's not the basis. It is not a cultural thing. It's a biblical thing. Look what he says. 4, verse 13. It was Adam who was first created, then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. It is a biblical issue that deals with that which occurred all the way back in Genesis with the creation and the fall. Everybody got it? So that's the basis. Man was created first, and the woman is the help me. That's not inferiority, folks. My wife is a major influence in my life. We stopped the car this morning, and we had prayer. And, but my wife is the one that's doing the praying because she is a great prayer warrior. When she prays for me, things happen. Now, you see, that's, that's an important issue that we've got to come to grips with. You don't be, have to be up front to be a leader. Does that make sense? Now, we go back to our text. She's doing something that biblically she's not supposed to be doing. She's self-proclaimed, and she's being unbiblical. But even beyond that, what is her heresy? And teaches and leads my bondservants, verse 20, astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, we went to our passage last time. I want to do it again. Go with me, hold your place here, and go with me to Numbers chapter 25. Numbers 25, talking about immorality and talking about sacrifices uh, to idols, and so on. Numbers 25, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2. Everybody there? Now, here we go. 
While Israel remained in Shedem, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Men were being attracted by uh, pagan women. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate, that is, at the feast, which is part of the act of worship in the pagan temples. They ate and they bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor. Now, you see what's going on. They had two things that they were doing when they went to the pagan worship. One, they ate, which is part of the worship experience, and they bowed down, they worshiped those pagan gods. Now, that's what she's talking about uh, in uh, the text before us. And when we go there, we note that it says she taught them to commit acts of immorality. In other words, when they were involved in those uh, pagan worship services, part of the worship was a feast, part of the worship was bowing down, part of the worship was immoral activity in the temple. So she is teaching them to do that. Now, you see the word immorality there. I want to stop right there. And I want to say something. That word is poinonia in the Greek text. And it is the word that is translated. Remember when uh, Jesus says, uh, all divorce is inappropriate except for fornication. That's the word here. Pornania, the same word that's used in this text. And the idea you need to understand, now listen to me closely. A lot of people talk about adultery, and it has to do with married people being unfaithful sexually. But this word pornania class is a general term. It's any kind of sexual uh, misbehavior. Everybody with me? So it includes uh, adultery, but it also includes homosexuality, lesbianism. It also includes things like pornography on the Internet, which is permeating our country, and it is permeating the churches. I'm telling you, as a pastor, it is permeating uh, many of our churches. And that's what she's teaching is that that's okay. In fact, it'll say in a minute or two down here, they, they, they've plummeted the depths of Satan. They're bragging about it because it doesn't impact their Christianity. All. That's a bunch of baloney. Amen? Now, notice what it says. Then she is, uh, she is involved in arrogancy, uh, disobedient to the, her position as a woman. She's teaching heresy. And the third thing that I want you to see, it involves her persistency. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Um, in other words, she doesn't want to quit. Uh, men love darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They enjoy their misbehavior and deviant behavior. And that's what's happening uh, with this woman. She's had a chance, 
and she has not repented. Now look at verse 22. Behold, I will cast her upon a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery, there's your other word, those who are involved in this kind of thing are ultimately not only involved in the other kinds of uh, sexual uh, misconduct, but you're being unfaithful to your spouse. Well, they didn't think that was any big deal. But the Scripture makes it a big deal. Amen? Now, notice what it says. And uh, they commit adultery, those that are committing adultery with her, into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. Then it talks about the, the people in the church. I will kill her children with a pestilence, that's disease. By the way, a sexual misconduct most often will lead to physical disease. When I was in, well, I don't know how much I want to say about it, but when I was in Vietnam as a chaplain, honestly, they would get infected with diseases, and then they'd get a shot of penicillin, the next time you're back in line to get another shot of penicillin. Can you understand what I'm saying there? It is an ongoing misbehavior, and it leads to disease. And that's what it's talking about. I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. So there's his warning and condemnation. But then here comes his, uh, his uh, compensation for those who are faithful. But, here's the second one, I say to you the rest, that is, those who are being faithful, who are in Theratira and do not hold to this teaching and have not known, quote, the depths of Satan, as they call it, I place no other burden on you. Just continue to be faithful. And then notice it says in verse 25, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast till I come. Be persistent. Don't give in to the cultural influence. And that is a major issue for us today. Child of God, I guarantee you, we've got to be careful about that. Because everybody's doing it. That's not the issue. It is they begin to influence the way you think by their argumentation. Sinful, heretical people can come up with major argumentation. And sometimes we have to just say, and I used to say it to a couple of my faculty members that got out of line, and I used to say, you're smarter than I am. You can outmaneuver me mentally, but you're dead wrong. And you finally have to come to that position. All right, now notice it says uh, a second thing about compensation. And he who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now that authority is a word in the Greek text that means delegate authority. Christ is going to give you that authority. And then he quotes Psalm 2, which is really about him, and he applies it to these people that he has given the delegated authority over the nations. And he shall rule them, that is, this faithful one who has authority. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as, and, as uh, the vessels of the potter are broken into pieces, 
as, notice, I also have received authority from the Father. In other words, uh, you have the authority delegated uh, from the Father to me and then from me to you. Okay? Then he says, verse 29, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit uh, says to the churches. Now, here's my point again. Here's the emphasis. I try to articulate it. All that to say this, theoretical her- uh, theological heresy destroys a quality ministry. Here is a great people, and they have more works now than you ever have, but something's eating away at your church. And if you don't correct it, I'm going to come and uh, judge the church. Everybody with me? Now, that's, that's a major one, Theratire. Then we go to uh, Sardis. This is the fifth church that he addresses. And by the way, I've mentioned to you, I think, that he just kind of picks churches, and, uh, and there are other churches in the area, but he picks these particular ones because they have traits that he wants to deal with because there are different churches that are similar to these in existence now. If you got to know them well enough, you would see there's a Sardis church, church or there is a Theratire church, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and then the ages down through the years, you see a progression of some of these things as well. But uh, Sardis, it means root, uh, and it uh, has to do with the rest, the remnant, the root is still there, but all the tree and the blossoms and the fruit have uh, have uh, become bad. But the root is still there. So he's talking about the remnant, and he'll talk about that in a minute. But notice, to the angel of the church at Sardis, right. Now, what is the point of this message? I want you to kind of keep it in mind as we work our way through the text. Notice what it says. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, He who has the seven stars and the seven, uh, uh, seven, has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, says. Now, when we look at this passage, here's what I want to suggest to you. My acceptance of Christ is dependent on my reliance on Christ. My acceptance of Christ is dependent on my reliance on Christ. Now, here we go. He who has the seven spirits of God. Stop. There are those, and you read enough commentaries, you'll find it. Some say seven spirits are talking about seven individual spirits that are super angels working with the churches. I think that misses the point. I want you to go with me back to chapter 1, verse 4. We have the same phrase used. We dealt with it before. want to deal with it again uh, to make an emphasis. Chapter 1, verse 4. Notice what it says. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, that is in Turkey, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come. Now, that's the Father. Then it says, and from the seven church, uh, from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and then from Jesus Christ. So we have the triunity of God. 
the Father who was, is, who is to come, the seven spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and Christ the Son. There's a triunity of God there. And so when you say, okay, what does then the seven spirits mean? Well, this time for sure, and this is the first reference to it in the book, so that's important, the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit in the triunity of God. And the verse that I would suggest, and we're not going to turn to it, but you might want to write down Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. And it describes the Spirit. He's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit of fear. He's the Spirit of discernment. He's the Spirit of knowledge and so on. And names seven different things about this Holy Spirit. And they're all describing who we call the Holy Spirit. Everybody with me? So when we go back to our our text then, we have to allow it to interpret what it's saying here. The seven spirits of God, talking about the Holy Spirit and his multiplicity of uh, uh, ministries to the churches. And to the seven stars uh, uh, say this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead spiritually. Now, class, let's talk about that a second. Uh, There are a lot of churches today that are very impressive. And you will see uh, things about certain churches on television, and they're looked upon with favor, not as much as they used to be, but these particular churches are looked upon with favor. And there, some of them, I wouldn't want to go to. I wouldn't want to be involved in them. Why? Because of their teaching and and so on. Uh, These are people that uh, are peer to the world, because they're so much like them, they think they're great, okay? But Jesus says that's the recognition of the world. My evaluation is you're spiritually dead. Now, notice he goes on and he offers correction. Here's what you can do to fix it. Notice his correction involves recognize the problem. Wake up. Wake up. See it? And then it says, all right, what are you going to do? You're going to strengthen the things uh, that remain which were about uh, to die. So it is talking about a reestablishment of truth. Go back and recognize uh, uh, this. And then secondly, he talks about a reaffirmation of truth. And uh, he says, I I have found your deeds not complete in the sight of God my Father, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Go back and reaffirm. Strengthen, reaffirm that. And then thirdly, keep it. So there is an application of truth, a reestablishment of truth, a reaffirmation of truth, and an application of truth. In other words, go back to your theological roots. Wake up. Look where you have descended theologically. And then he says, wake up, or what's going to happen? I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, class, I want to stop there a second, too, and make an observation for you. When you hear 
Christ is coming as a thief. That means he's coming in judgment. Okay? Uh, Let me give you a couple of verses just to verify that. Uh, Matthew 24 and verse uh, 43 teaches that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, uh, chapter 5, verse 2 to 4. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 to 4 teaches that. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13. They're all talking about Christ coming as a thief, and he's coming in judgment. And that's what's being prescribed here, or uh, described here. I will come as a thief. I will come in judgment if you don't repent. Then uh, notice, uh, he says in verse 4, here's his compensation. He says, but you uh, have a few. There's your word, remnant, okay? There it is. There's only a few of you, uh, but you're the root. Uh, There are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Uh, There's their acceptability uh, before the Lord. You will walk with me. And then he mentions their security as well. Look at it. And he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. You are going to walk with me in your purity throughout eternity is the idea. And he says, I will not erase your name from the book of life. We've already talked about that, but if you want to go back and look at it, I'll give you a couple of verses. Chapter 13, verse 8, about this uh, book and whether or not uh, the names are erased or retained. Uh, Revelation 13, 8, 17, 8, and chapter 20, verse 12, and chapter uh, 20, verse 15. Now, the idea is all people have their name uh, written in the book of life before the foundations of the world. And the text is saying if they remain uh, in the book uh, from the foundations of the world, then they are overcomers. But if they don't retain that that kind of relationship, they will be erased. They will not be characterized as people who have their name from the beginning all the way through now. They'll be blotted out. Everybody with me? So people who reject Christ are the ones that are going to be eliminated from the book. So the text says, And I will not, verse 5, will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess him before my father. So there is their relationship and security with Christ. But the overwhelming majority of these people are people who have just totally rejected truth, okay, so that there's only a remnant. By the way, there are churches like that today. They're sweet, elderly people for the most part who are sitting in a church somewhere and they're just, you know, they don't know where else to go. They don't know what's wrong, but it's not the church they used to to experience. Something's happened. And that's what's talking about here in Sardis. Everybody with me? So the idea is then your acceptance in Christ is dependent on your reliance on him and the people at Sardis 
weren't doing that. They'd forgotten the truth that they had learned from the beginning. Now, we come to the Philadelphia church, and uh, we've got about 10 minutes. I, I hope I can make it through it, but we will see. Philadelphia church, and I think you all know the name Philadelphia, phileo, uh, love, uh, and then brother attached to the, those two words together, and you get Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. Now, again, Christ will give his credentials. He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no man can shut, and he shuts and no man can open, says this. Now, he's got the authority to shut down or to open. And here's what, he's, here's what he is going to say. Uh, says this, verse 8. Here is his commendation. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no man can shut. Why? Because you have a little power, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now, we want to talk about that a little bit. We have a wide open door. We are in a church. I think we're on the waning side of it. I remember when I first became a, a Christian in church, we would talk about missionaries and supporting missionaries and praying for the missionaries and People were going to the mission field. Now, uh, I can tell you, having been a board member on a mission for 11 years, Biblical Ministries Worldwide, it's, it's getting harder and harder, not only to recruit, recruit, but where to go to find people that you want to recruit. People are not going to the field like they used to. And so the missionary church age is beginning to wane. Everybody with me and understand what we're talking about. But this church has a wide open door. And the Lord Jesus tells us why they do. Notice what he says. I know your deeds, verse 8, and I put before you an open door which no man can shut because you have a little power. Now, let's talk about that a second. You have some spiritual power. When it says a little power, I remember the first time when I was first believer, I'd look at that little power, and that was a derogatory statement. No, no, no. It is saying, you've got some. Most of them don't, but you've got a little bit. And that's why I've given you this open door of ministry. Everybody with me? Now, why is, is that important? I would like to suggest to you that he says, you have a little power, and that's because... You have an intimacy with God that allows his, his power to flow through you into a ministry to other people. Intimacy with God is what gives us spiritual power. Everybody understand that? I, I have a book, or I did, uh, in my library. I gave away so much of it. But there was a book that was so interesting. The title was uh, The Silent Language uh, um, the silent language of time. In other words, how much time do you watch television? Uh, how much time do you uh, involve yourself in whatever activity? That tells you what's a priority in your life. Okay? 
if somebody calls you, we got a call last night at 10 o'clock. Well, when the phone rings at 10 o'clock, you say, okay. Time says they wouldn't be calling that that time most of the time. Or you get it, let's say, at midnight while you're in bed asleep. Uh-oh. If it's not a wrong number, what's, what's time telling us here? Okay? Now, <clears throat> here's what I want to say to you, and we're going to run out of time, but I want to do it anyway. When I was pastoring in Tippecanoe, Indiana, a Congregational Christian Church, in Tippecanoe, Indiana, it was an independent church. I was a, a student at Grace Seminary, and I pastored this church for three years. We had 30 people and went all the way up to 90, and they thought they had a revival. Now, I guess they did for the town that we were in. They had tripled in size. That, that was pretty good, you know. Uh, but I was so frustrated, and I may have told this, but I had preached through all my notes at seminary, every note from Homer Kent and uh, Dr. Whitcomb and all my favorite teachers and, and uh, all of that. And, and, you know, the church just wasn't doing what I thought it ought to do, even though we were increasing and so on. So I spent a night in prayer. I said, honey, you just go on to bed, and I'm going to stay up and pray. And I did. And uh, spent time in the Word, and and the next morning I went to church. I, said, I was pumped, you know. God is really going to bless. And I preached the sermon, and I I thought I did a halfway decent job. Gave an invitation, doesn't happen. We had special music brought in. It was it was a great opportunity, but when it was all over, I was totally defeated because I'd spent so much time with the Lord, and nothing seemingly was happening. And here's what happened. After the service, as I was getting ready to leave, the moderator of the church came to me and said, Pastor, my father-in-law, you don't even know he exists. His name was Otis Fields. He was 79 years of age. He was on his sickbed, and he was unconscious. And they had a little lady, I call her the GRBC lady, regular Baptist, which is a great group of people. Uh, and she was the sit-in uh, for Otis Field. And I went there that Sunday afternoon. And may I say, I didn't want to. I was defeated. I wanted to go home and mope and suck my thumb and that kind of thing. Uh, but the bottom line was, I went to see Otis Fields. And it was, it was a miracle of sorts. He was conscious. I got to talk to him. So I started witnessing to Otis Fields who supposedly was a charter member in the church I was pastoring. I didn't even know he existed. But he was conscious. He understood me. And when I shared the gospel, my little old uh, GRBC ladies, man, she started praying. And tears started running down Otis's cheeks. And as far as we could tell, Otis feels, yes, I want Christ as my Savior. I'll never forget that as long as I live. Point. You walk with God, you'll see the power of God. Amen? Then notice, there's one more. Notice what he says. He says, uh, you have a little power, and that's because of your intimacy, and you have kept my word. You have theological integrity or accuracy. Uh, I, I'm, again, I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was a chaplain, 
uh, at Fort Gordon, uh, I mean Fort Lee, after I'd come back from Vietnam, we had a couple that had three little boys, same age as ours, and uh, Billy Ingram was a chaplain like me. And we became friends, and, and uh, uh, you know, I just assumed that his theology was correct. We never really talked about it a lot. But we had a religious retreat. We found out in the regulations that we could do that, and we get the money, and uh, so uh, the army paid for this spiritual retreat. We had about 30 guys there or something like that. And Bill said, I want you to you do the preaching. So I gave a little simple message. We're always with the goal of introducing them to Jesus Christ. And many of those guys, I can't remember how many, I think I've got even their names written down in my uh, book uh, at home where I kept records. But many of them came to know the Lord. But here's the point of my story. When it was all over, Billy turned to me and he said, John, you've restored my confidence in the Word of God. And I thought, my lands, what has this guy been struggling with? He had been to a big, famous seminary, but they had took his faith in the Word away from him. And he just saw me preaching in a very simple fashion, no big deal. And he saw people getting saved, and he said, the Word does have power. You've restored my confidence. Amen. Then one more, and, 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 and I still got a minute, I think. Notice, you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Ministerial integrity. In other words, we can deny the name of the Lord in a number of ways. One is through our faulty theology. Another is we cut off our conversation and we never talk to people about the Lord. Making sense? You haven't denied my name. You haven't kept your mouth shut. You've witnessed. I was sitting in a restaurant here in Birmingham. I was a well, I was either academic dean or president. I can't remember which. And we had a special guy come in, one of my former students from another school, considering it for our teaching position. And as I was talking to Steve, I heard somebody in the background, and it was somebody witnessing. So while I'm talking to Steve, I'm doing uh, dual things. I I'm listening to what's going on back here, and I finally realized who it was. It was Frank Barker. And he had taken somebody. This is Frank Barker. That's who he is. And uh, so he had taken somebody out to dinner, and, man, he was letting them know about the gospel. That's how they built that church over there, by a man who was committed to telling other people about Jesus Christ. So why has this church got an open door? Because they've got people that walk with God and have a little power. Why is there an open door? Because you have been faithful to my word, and finally, you have not denied my name. That makes sense? That's why you got an open door. Now, next week, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in the latter part of the chapter because it will lead us into chapter 4. All right, let's pray together and we'll be through. Father, thank you so much for your word. And I pray that as we've worked our way through this material today, 
that somehow by your spirit you'll work in the hearts and the lives of each of us to recognize the fallacious things that are going on in these churches and not allow them to happen in our lives or in our church. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.